but I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Threckel, Dr. Stephen Threckel, and Dr. Imad Omer. And I think we're going to be starting, I think, with Dr. Stephen Threckel, but whoever's taking it, I'm going to hand it over and let you, go, you all go from here. So thank you so much again. Thank you very much, Dr. Sullivan. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, just want to, let me see if I can share my screen here. And share. Can you see that, Ann? Is that? Not, not yet. yet. Uh oh, not yet. Stand by. Okay. And share. And. Yes, now we are seeing it. Now we're good. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm going. Okay, so uh, thanks for the invitation, and we're going to sort of split three topics and do about a six-hour lecture in an hour. So I'm going to, I normally don't apologize for going fast, but we're going to go kind of fast today. Um, so my segment of this is COVID late 2022. We all feel like it should be um, AD on there or something by now, because it seems to have trailed off for a long time. And I'm going to really focus on three questions. Number one, can we still do better when your best friend's brother-in-law's mom gets COVID? The practicality of how we treat outpatient COVID, in other words. Number two, does it really matter now that, quote, the pandemic is over, unquote? And thirdly, what about this bivalent vaccine thing? Should I get it? So we'll dive right in with, can we still do better when your best friend's brother-in-law's mom gets COVID? And the answer is, unfortunately, yes, we can. So if you look at the NIH guidelines, from which I'm really going to be quoting on this, of outpatient therapy, you'll notice the title, Management of Adults with COVID-19 Not Requiring Hospitalization or Supplemental Oxygen. I'm not going to deal with inpatient uh, uh, care because that's fairly well laid out, and most of the teams will have multiple members working on that. But if there are really three components to outpatient care, and we don't always do great about them, honestly. Number one, all patients should be offered symptomatic management, and I will not waste any more time talking about Tylenol. Um, the second, though, is the important one, and this is, uh, we violate this a lot, cumulatively, I think, both locally and nationally. The panel recommends against, highlighted against, the use of dexamethasone or other systemic corticosteroids in the absence of another indication, which again means that absent uh, some severe asthma uh, exacerbation that requires steroids, um, you really shouldn't give a medrol dose pack, dexamethasone, any of those things. We are trying to maximize immune function. People with immune deficits do worse with this disease after all. So not only does it has it been shown not to help, it is theoretically possible that it could hurt those people. We see it a lot. Um, we see people getting a medrol dose pack and a Z pack uh, with a really, really high incidence in these sorts of situations. It clearly, I think, is is contraindicated unless it has a separate issue that you need to that you need to chase. This is a list, I'm not going to go through it in any detail, but this is the list of multiple high-risk conditions. They include things as mundane uh, as physical inactivity. I won't comment on that anymore, but there are a lot of people in this group. I think most important ones are age, over 70, 75 years old, underlying immune problems, underlying severe lung and heart problems. In any of those sort of situations, you would be eligible for actual management. Again, this is still outpatients not requiring hospitalization or supplemental oxygen, but the severity of your early illness does not necessarily point to the severity or the likelihood, rather, of your getting severe lung disease later. If you're an older person who's immunosuppressed and diabetic, you are at risk for increased risk for late disease and pulmonary problems, whether you feel bad during the first three days or not. And that's an important mistake. I get people all the time saying, I'm not going to give this guy 
uh, Paxlovid because they feel fine uh, on day three of the illness, or I'm going to give it to them because they have fever of 101. Those things are not terribly relevant in whether to give. It's really, it's really the underlying patient themselves, independent of their symptoms. Now, here's uh, this bright red squiggly line is, is uh, obnoxious by, on purpose because I want to see there's a great divide between these two things. One is ritonavir-boosted nermatrovir, better known as Paxlovid, uh, and the other is remdesivir. These are the two widely recommended therapies. Paxlovid is first, remdesivir is second. Paxlovid, as we'll see in a second, has a big problem with medication interactions. Remdesivir uh, is a really problem with logistics. We give it at our infusion centers, the various ones around this hospital and other places. It's a three-day course as opposed to the five days. And, you know, it didn't do so great in inpatient people with late disease. That's not a surprise. All antivirals do better if you give them earlier. So early on, remdesivir uh, works nearly as well as Paxlovid. But again, logistically, it's difficult. Now, if and only if those things are unavailable, let's say it's a person who's on amiodarone and has severe renal disease but not dialysis, that person wouldn't be a great candidate for either one and might be a candidate for the monoclonal antibody bebtilovimab. Uh, and then the other oral medication, molnupiravir, which has some issues with teratogenicity and other things, those would be your later choice. Don't reach for a monoclonal antibody if you can at all do any of the other ones. Molnupiravir is still probably appropriate uh, for some use, it's a 30% effective at decrease in hospitalization and mortality, and you would take such a discount on your car purchase, and you certainly would take one uh, on hospitalization and death if it's all you had to offer. Um, one point to remember, again, antibacterial therapy, especially including azithromycin and other simple to prescribe, highly sought after treatments by patients, are not listed in the NIH guidelines. Again, a Z-pack and a Medrol dose pack is exactly what you don't want to do. In point of reality, uh, there are frequently uh, secondary bacterial infections after influenza of pneumococcus, staph, and others. That is much less the case with COVID. It is interesting. I'm sure we even know why. Um, but in that situation, we do not very often need to have treatment for secondary bacterial problems. So those are the things that we want to really focus on in our care. And if we just do those things correctly, we're in good shape. But one final thing, uh, this is a list. I'm not going to go over this in any detail, but these are the medications that uh, you can give freely with Paxlovid. Um, look at things like acid blockers, pantoprazole, antibiotics. Thankfully, z you can indeed give without interaction. So otherwise, we'd have a lot of people in trouble right now. Tecoviramat. So if you get your monkeypox COVID uh, dual infection, you could theoretically treat both of them at the same time. Uh, moving on to lists of uh, things that you really can't give, amiodarone, anti-seizure medications, there are a lot. Uh, there are some that you should that you should withhold, all of the uh, anti-cholesterol medications, for example. Here are ones that you should be very careful at adjusting medication doses. Uh, things like pain medicines, hydrocodone, oxycodone on the uh, upper right, and erectile dysfunction uh, medication on the lower left, two classes that many people cannot live without, so you have to be careful about dosing those things. And then finally, ones that you can give, uh, things like blood thinners, some uh, blood pressure medicines, those can be given, but you have to monitor. And I would just say that uh, nearly every day during the peak of this, and I still get calls from pharmacies and folks who have been given medications that are contraindicated. So you can really do harm with the Paxlovid uh, uh, deal. And I would point out these lists, again, not to have you look at any of them in particular, but to point out that you are not good enough 
to do this in your head, nor am I. I've only known a couple of people in my life that could do that, and probably neither of us are one of them. So when you call and say, my mother has COVID, can she take Paxlovid? One of us is going to have to get out a computer and look at that list, because that's the first thing I'm going to ask you, what are they taking? It can be done with uh, Hippocrates. There are, there are actually apps and stuff through the NIH site that you can look at these lists and tell. So I'd recommend that you be careful do that. Don't just give Paxlovid without checking this, because it really can bring about some harm. But really, that kind of summarizes the situation for outpatient therapy and the one that I will uh, spend the most time on, I hope. Um, so uh, the second, uh, should we still care about this? Does it matter now that, quote, the pandemic is over? Um, and I really only have two slides on this topic. And the point is that though we think it's unimportant and though we think that COVID is a common cold now to most people who have been vaccinated and indeed folks who are not immunosuppressed and even some of them who are up to date on boosters uh, and certainly kind of normal young folks who've even received the primary uh, two doses of vaccinations, let alone boosters, um, they do well typically. Or do they? There, there certainly are increased risks of those. And this is just one example of a Nature Medicine paper that documented uh, 150 plus thousand people with COVID in a VA cohort. Now, realize that they tended to be Caucasian and male. Um, but if you look at this, this is simply the dash line on the left is sort of the uh, comparator. And they had millions, many millions of people, uh, both contemporaneous comparators and historical comparators to look at. And if you look at the bottom, any cardiovascular outcome, and those include ischemic heart disease, myocarditis, arrhythmias, uh, strokes, clots, all of those together, they were approaching 50 new episodes per thousand patients of those. Um, approaching 25 of all-cause mortality increase. This really has increased the death rate around the globe. Now, keep in mind, this was not just at the time of the mission. This dated things from 30 days out from their initial infection all the way out to a year. We don't know what the data are for five years. That is interestingly, uh, ironically, in contradiction to what people said about the vaccine. I said, well, what are the long-term risks of this vaccine? We don't know, therefore we shouldn't get it. Well, in fact, there's never been a vaccine in the history uh, of science that had a side effect that popped up a year later, or two years later, that you didn't see on the front end. But again, ironically, we are seeing these events uh, continue to occur at least a year out, and we don't know what the final analysis is going to be in the increased load of cardiovascular patients and problems because of this uh, because of this actual infection. So important to remember that getting this vac getting this virus two or three times, four times is arguably a bad thing, even if you don't get too sick. And now what about the what about that level of illness? And this is the other slide um, that I wanted to show. And this shows the severity of illness as it plays out in folks and their likelihood of long COVID cardiovascular problems. The green is not hospitalized. The orange is uh, hospitalized, but not ICU admissions and the purple are ICU. And not unexpectedly, it's significantly more in folks who reached an ICU level of care um, for those sorts of events, approaching 300 per thousand patient in any cardiovascular events, uh, and 150 uh, even in people who are hospitalized at all, and sort of in the 50 range out of a thousand for uh, anybody who was uh, shown to be infected. So you don't have to get ill, particularly if you're looking at thrombotic disorders, some of the inflammatory heart disease, uh, that is myocarditis. People worry about myocarditis with a vaccine, very small numbers in young males, 
But the reality of in every age group, certainly all comers, and even in that young male group, the risk is much higher in folks who actually have the infection than it was with that vaccine. Um, so uh, pushing on then to the final question, what about this bivalent vaccine thing? Should I get it? And I want to just at least show a slide about T cells versus B cells. B cells on the right make antibodies. Hopefully, uh, the uh, the strong antibodies that actually uh, inhibit the virus completely, uh, and we 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 like that to prevent the infections altogether. And T cells on the left really keep us from dying. And if you look at this slide, it shows that asymptomatic infection is prevented very nicely by neutralizing antibodies. And T cells haven't had time to jump in yet. But as you move to the right. T cells kick in and have much more of a role in keeping us from dying of this infection. And a very important point um, uh, to make, I think, as we go. The incubation period of this virus is very short. Um, and uh, people say, well, what about the fact that, um, you know, people say, well, this is not even a vaccine because it doesn't prevent. Uh, if I'm at a gathering, people frequently say, you know, you know, this is not really a vaccine at all. And, and I usually say, well, uh, A, yes, I know that whether or not it's a vaccine and B, aren't you a financial manager? Um, and so really, they don't take into account the fact that um, preventing disease altogether is not part of the definition of a vaccine. But the reason we don't have great vaccines against a lot of these respiratory infections is that the incubation is so short that you have to have neutralizing antibodies already there at the ready to prevent asymptomatic infections and even mild symptomatic infections. And antibodies like that decay over time. Otherwise, our antibodies would be a viscous syrup that we could not survive in. So you have things ready, memory cells ready to jump up. And this is a, an early indicator that a storm front was coming in on our antibody levels. It's an old colleague of mine, Otto Yang, who's now at UCLA, who published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that neutralizing antibody levels declined fairly rapidly. This is a logarithmic scale, so that relatively small slope on average is a much bigger slope than you think. And he points out that after 90 to 120 days, you really get into a situation where you may not have that much protection. And guess what? We saw this when we looked at, uh, uh, at uh, the virus. We saw that initially there was protection against even minimally symptomatic infection. Now, we have uh, in the Delta range here, it getting into the summer of 21, you may recall the Provincetown, Massachusetts outbreak where a lot of people got the infection, even though vaccinated, but none of them died. And so while this should have been hailed as a great success, it was unfortunately hailed as a breakthrough uh, disaster, really wasn't at all. But then Omicron changed the whole lay of the land. You can see in January of 22, uh, no matter which vaccine you got and the different colors representing it, there was a pretty large increase in, in cases, so-called breakthrough cases. Nothing like unvaccinated people in the black. But if you look at mortality, it's a different story. Uh, there was still a five-time risk of dying uh, even, by, uh, even by this summer. But you can see in the Omicron portion in January of 22, there was a bit of a blip uh, in those people. And again, that was independent of which vaccine you had gotten. But one more item about this, uh, if you'd had one booster, um, you could see that you actually had a better, in the purple there, mortality rate than folks who'd only received the primary series. So that was the first indication that those boosters may help at preventing uh, more severe disease, even as time goes by. And this is the final sort of curve here. And it's interesting in that it shows you that 
a second booster in people over 50 and the purple on the bottom actually separated. And that second booster in the older age group actually had an impact on mortality once we got out further uh, into these mutants like Omicron uh, and the like. So that probably means that those were older folks, folks with immunosuppression, the higher risk folks actually benefited from a fourth vaccine dose or a second booster. But the 28 year old healthy person probably didn't make much difference in them other than preventing them from getting a mild infection and then giving it to somebody else. And this is the final uh, sort of issue on the, uh, on, the, on the vaccine. This is the new bivalent vaccine. And I will say it's the most complicated thing that we have seen uh, in COVID, I think, and that's saying something. And this shows two graphs comparing the old mRNA vaccine, 1273, against the new bivalent vaccines. And we found indeed that the new vaccine gave somewhere around a one and a half to 1.7 fold increase in neutralizing antibody. Now, the problem is that I think it's been oversold by, uh, uh, by really everybody in terms of the publicity about this. 1.5 to 1.7 is really nice until you stop and think about the fact that Pfizer and Moderna had a twofold difference in the original vaccine that didn't translate into any clinical benefit. So the idea that the new bivalent vaccine is a game changer with the variants that we've seen so far has simply not yet been demonstrated in humans. There's some mice data uh, that, uh, that might suggest that, but we have a long way to go before we can really say that for sure. That said, it probably is good to have a wider range immunity against newer variants. Uh, data will tell. It is the only one you have now, though, and so we don't have the old vaccine. So it still is worth getting as that curve has separated, like we said. And again, the last point, uh, we do see that the vaccine has, the virus has changed. And you can see in red there a couple of new variants that are now prevailing at avoiding our immune system. So the winter will be very instructive to see if our immune system and the new variants can hold uh, against these new variants that are coming out. So we're now in a situation where we're competing with pluses and minuses. There are cardiovascular and other long-term complications, vulnerable people around us that we want to protect by not getting the vaccine at all, and a hedge against future variants. But again, there's, uh, there's repetitive vaccine risk, and there's simply the inertia of people getting a vaccine. And those on the right seem to be winning out, uh, probably unfortunately so far. And my last slide is a bit depressing. Uh, it's a professor at Johns Hopkins, and I don't need to make fun of this person because we all agree with this, but it's this data show that repeated COVID infections, quote, increased risk for cardiovascular and mental health complications down the road, suggesting that people should try to limit infection while having as much of a normal life as possible. And though we would all storm the ramparts to support that strategy and that philosophy, uh, it's a little bit like a Goldilocks sort of uh, evaluation of the porridge. And so um, th there's a lot to go and a lot more data to gather on exactly what you should do as a 72-year-old uh, Asian male or Caucasian female with X number of problems and how to, how to behave, when to get your boosters, and all those things remain uh, a problem looking downstream. So with, there, with that, I'll stop and turn it over to uh, Ahmad, and we can answer any questions later on that you might not have. Thanks, Steve. <clears throat> Thanks, Dr. Sullivan. Uh, I'm just going to jump right into this. Um, and make sure you guys can see my slides. Can you see that? Yes. Yes. All right, so we're going to uh, jump into monkeypox, and I'm going to talk about that, and that is sort of the way things have followed uh, the time course. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about the history and epidemiology, clinical manifestations, and, and uh, spend a few minutes on prevention and treatment. 
Um, so pox viruses are important. A lot of us get confused because we're not very creative about the names. We always like to tie it to an animal for some reason. Uh, and so monkeypox is not related to chickenpox, but there are a number of these orthomyxoviruses and some of them are do have um, animals associated with them. And so that's how they carry these names. So the ones of clinical concern, cowpox virus, uh, monkeypox virus, vaccinia, and, and then smallpox, which is variola. There are a number of others, and, and I won't talk about those except maybe uh, teterovirus pox, um, teterapox virus, which uh, in, in Tennessee we like to call taterpox. Um, this is molluscum contagiosum. It's a common illness. Um, pediatricians will be very familiar with this. We see it in immunocompromised uh, patients as well, and it causes the characteristic sort of uh, lesions, these pox lesions that are uh, umbilicated. So you can see how it centrally has a little bit of ulceration, and that's an umbilicated uh, papule. Um, this is generally a mild disease, and in children uh, resolves over you know six to 12 months, and it usually doesn't scar. This is another virus that ID doctors love to talk about, although we don't see it clinically very often. It's called ORF, and it's associated with uh, sheep and goats and uh, frequently can cause large ulcers. Um, this uh, illness is not transmitted from person to person, but is uh, transmitted from uh, animals to people. This is cowpox, and this is important historically. It occasionally also causes human disease, but um, it's important because it led to the development of uh, smallpox vaccination. Edward Jenner, uh, who was a very observant fellow, noticed that the milkmaids had uh, very uh, good complexions compared to other people who were pockmarked and uh, noted that uh, many of them had been exposed to, to this illness on the cows that they were milking. But this is a very important illness of uh, now only historical uh, um, sort of concern, and it's smallpox. Um, and on the left here, you'll see somebody with variola major and variola minor, the two different manifestations of smallpox. This illness changed the course of history, and there were many hundreds of millions of deaths, not cases, deaths due to smallpox, and uh, this devastated uh, societies and populations. And so it was very important for us to find a vaccine for, and this is one of the great successes of uh, sort of modern uh, um, uh, medicine, that we found uh, a way to prevent this illness and to vaccinate people. Um, and the last case of naturally occurring smallpox occurred in 1977 in Bangladesh in a, in a young woman who's still alive today, interestingly. But um, in the uh, World Health Organization, the authorities declared that this um, illness was eradicated from the world in 1980. So why is it smallpox even worth talking about right now? Because some of the treatments and preventions we have now are really directed at smallpox. Um, and we are now using them for monkeypox as these uh, treatments and, and preventions are also active against other pox viruses. So important things to know about the difference though, monkeypox is not as easily transmitted and it's certainly not as fatal as smallpox was. 30% of people who got smallpox died. 
30%. Think about that in, in reference to what, you know, you just know about COVID recently. So the, the, this is a devastating illness. Um, and uh, so it's been 40 years or more, however, since we have vaccinated people. And although we don't have naturally occurring smallpox, it uh, prevents people likely from getting other pox viruses, including, as it turns out, monkeypox. So I'm going to talk um, about the signs and symptoms, and this is going to be important for us because this likely is an illness that's going to be with us for a while. Um, it's, it's a virus that has a much slower uh, sort of incubation, much longer incubation than COVID that Steve just talked about, usually uh, one to two weeks, but six days to 13 days, and it can be longer or slightly shorter than that. But there are certainly cases where someone was exposed three weeks earlier and then develops the symptoms. And the infection starts first as, as invasion, uh, which is characterized by systemic symptoms, and then later by rash, usually um, that occurs within a day to three days after the fever starts. And the, the systemic symptoms usually last like many viral illnesses. They last for you know up to five days, some shorter than that. And it's characterized by fever, headache, back pain, myalgias, lymphadenopathy, and we'll come back to that, but lymphadenopathy is an important thing that distinguishes this from other pox viruses. And it, it, it may initially appear similar to some other uh, rash illnesses, but the lymphadenopathy, which can be tender and quite prominent, um, differentiates this uh, particular virus. The rash um, usually affects the face, but, um, you know, in, in the recent outbreak, we see a lot of uh, genital involvement, and it, it sort of um, progresses over time, initially starts as uh, sort of a flat rash, and then turns into papules and, and vesicles and pustules, and then it crusts. Unlike, uh, for instance, shingles, um, once it's crusted, it can still be contagious. And so uh, until the crusts sort of peel off and there's normal skin underneath, this virus is still considered to be contagious. And, and that's an important part because people will still need to um, uh, sort of uh, be separated uh, from the population during that period of time, and it can be lengthy. The uh, traditional illness, monkeypox, that we knew about for many years was really isolated to uh, several countries in Africa, and usually uh, we saw it crop up when there was some societal turmoil, and so you see here in the dark here, you see the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and there were the most cases occurred there and you, in the setting of, of you know, sort of war and, and strife. Um, we've talked about this, um, the, the symptoms. Um, these are the general symptoms of monkeypox in the past. They tended to be on the hands. Children were frequently infected. Uh, these days, it's a little different. We're going to talk about that. Uh, monkeypox in the current outbreak frequently causes genital lesions and often in men who have sex with men, although there's nothing particular about that group um, and it can spread to others. It just so happens that this is the group that we see it in. And it is true that this appears to be uh, a sexually transmitted illness now, which it wasn't uh, in the past. Uh, 
I'm going to talk about that briefly. This is a published case um, that uh, uh, shows very uh, impressively the lesions that can occur on the genitals. And they are similar to other sexually transmitted diseases. So it's going to be important to have an index of suspicion. Particularly, chancroid can cause lymphadenopathy as well. And so this illness associated with these ulcerative lesions and papules, um, it also can cause this, this painful lymphadenopathy, and that's an important thing to, to note. This is uh, one of the uh, early cases published in the United States by one of uh, Dr. Threlkeld's uh, colleagues at uh, the Brigham. This uh, was a case of a patient who presented um, to the hospital, and we had not seen a case of monkeypox in the United States at the time or didn't know about it. And you can see the progression of these lesions that, um, you know, started um, on the chest and that were there for a couple of days before admission and then developed uh, other lesions, which initially are painful and then subsequently can just become pruritic. Um, what to do about this in the hospital? I'm going to talk about that first in terms of prevention, because that is important to the audience we're talking to right here. Um, certainly in the hospital, you we, we take somewhat draconian measures to prevent infection because the patients are sicker and patients in the hospital uh, many times are immunocompromised. And so we are taking precautions to prevent this illness um, beyond what uh, might be necessary normally. So the current guidelines, and these are interim guidelines, this may change, but right now gown, gloves, eye protection, and there's a recommendation for an N95 mask. Now, why is that? Um, again, these are immunocompromised patients, but generally this is contact and this is not an, an airborne illness. But uh, when we first start out seeing these things and as the disease is newly somewhat, uh, the new characteristics of the disease are newly described, these are, the, these are the guidelines for the hospital. So when you're dealing with other patients in the hospital that might be uh, you know, bone marrow transplant patients or solid organ transplant patients, it's important to be uh, extra careful. And that's the reason for these guidelines. Um, so standard precautions, the patients should be, um, you know, who are confirmed or suspected, uh, they should be in a single room and it is not necessary to have the patients in airborne isolation, but the N95 mask is recommended. Um, and, um, uh, if you're intubating these patients or extubating them or doing things that might generate aerosols, then the recommendation is for airborne isolation. Um, these precautions should be maintained again until there's healthy skin underneath. And so that can be a very long time. It can be, you know, up to three weeks or more uh, after the onset of symptoms. If uh, the how to handle contacts in the community, they should be monitored for symptoms for at least that period of time, three weeks. And if you've been in contact with someone and have fever, chills, new lymphadenopathy or a rash, um, that's, you know, an important uh, consideration that monkeypox may be the cause. Um, fever and rash occur in almost everyone with monkeypox. Some people have very mild fever that's short-lived, um, and certainly the rash is the way we define this. Um, there certainly are a variety of uh, severities of the rash. Sometimes the rash can be just a few lesions, and other times there can be a great many that become confluent. Um, if you have systemic symptoms and you've been in contact, then you should remain and self-isolate for at least 24 hours and monitor the temperature. If you get a fever, 
then and rash, then you should contact the health department. If you don't have those symptoms and don't get uh, other symptoms, um, you're probably fine. If you have, you know, incomplete symptoms, you should likely be evaluated by your physician or contact the health department. And this is, again, talking about contacts of cases. If you're asymptomatic, you continue your routine activities. I should mention that this illness is not as contagious as other um, viral infections that you might know about. And it is said that you could be in the same room as a patient with monkeypox and not be expected to get the illness if you were in the room for up to eight hours. Household contacts, however, that could be different. I'll talk briefly about vaccination. Uh, the vaccination that we have for monkeypox is based on the previous smallpox vaccination, and we had a great deal of it stockpiled in case of um, bioterrorism. Uh, 200 million doses of the old um, uh, smallpox vaccine, which some people in the audience will remember, um, and it's different than other vaccines you've gotten. It's not a shot. They actually use a needle to create a wound on, on the body, and there's live virus. And so as a result of this, um, it is associated with some side effects, and there is even vaccine-related illness with vaccinia that can occur. And so for this reason, this uh, vaccine is not favored. There's a newer vaccine. It was licensed in 2019, again, for bioterrorism. It's available for adults age 18 and over, and it's an attenuated non-replication competent virus. So this is not something that's going to spread vaccinia, and you wouldn't expect them to become ill from this. Um, it's safe and, and very effective with a better side effect profile in, in studies. And again, these are studies done on normal hosts. These are not uh, people that were tested with smallpox, obviously, because it didn't exist. And it certainly was never tested for uh, monkeypox um, specifically. There's an emergency use authorization for outbreaks of pox viruses that the CDC has and has had prior to this. I'm just going to talk briefly about the number of cases. Um, <clears throat> the U.S., again, is, is, is leading the way in terms of, of cases. This is an old slide. There are actually 26,000 cases. Um, uh, I'm going to switch here for a second. I think I've got... Um, the incorrect... I'm going to get down to the correct numbers here. All right. Sorry. Yeah. So the U.S., again, leading the way, 26,000 cases. Um, Tennessee has 300 cases. These are the top 10 states with uh, monkeypox. Um, the global um, epidemic, uh, 69,000 cases worldwide. And, and, you know, you see a lot of different countries. So it's spread. Um, the demographics generally are um, men. So this is data from the MMWR. And um, some of these data, there's missing gender information uh, based on how the, the, the data was collected. But you can see the purple is the disease in women. And we haven't seen it spread much to women. 99% of the patients have generally been men who have sex with men. Um, but the first case, the index case, we now think, was an 11-year-old boy 
that probably acquired it from a household contact in Nigeria in 2017. And uh, in 2019, the doctor that identified that published this study, and he had noted many cases in Nigeria where there had not been a case for 38 years. And uh, he commented that he thought it might be sexually transmitted in 2019. So we kind of had some inclination of this before, and then it, it uh, spread widely. Um, Yeah, I think I'm just going to finish there. I'm just going to show you this doctor um, who identified the illness. Um, and he should get credit for this. Um, it, there had not been a case of uh, monkeypox for 38 years in Nigeria. And he uh, saw an 11-year-old child with a, a pox virus, sent it off to be studied. And the U.S. was actually where it was identified. And then subsequently, there were many cases. And although he uh, alerted us to this, um, there was, uh, uh, you know, uh, we didn't see the outbreak until several five years later. I'm going to stop there and uh, I can take questions at the end. I'm going to let uh, um, Mike Threlkeld talk to you about influenza. Thanks, Ahmad. Uh, let me make sure I get my slideshow up and going here. Hang on two seconds. Can you all see that fine? Yes, we can. Okay, thanks. Uh, we're going to finish up this little marathon with uh, a discussion of influenza virus. Influenza, if you think about it, is one of the classic plagues of antiquity. Uh, ranking up there in importance with things like the bubonic plague, uh, measles, smallpox that was mentioned earlier, uh, and others. But of all those, the only one that we're still talking about at an update on infectious disease is influenza. Uh, so I'm going to not talk today about the illness itself or its treatment or management, because that's something that everyone, both personally as well as professionally, is very experienced with. Instead, I'm going to talk a little bit about the unique aspects of influenza virus that explain why it's still around and still a relevant problem to this day. The virus itself is an RNA virus, uh, and one of the interesting properties is that it is a segmented viral genome with individual strands which correspond uh, in some analogous way to individual genes of, uh, of another organism. Uh, that is uh, uh, combined with protein to form a ribonuclear protein strand, as you can see the green coils in the center of this cutaway. The surface proteins are very important in our nomenclature as well as the immunology of the virus, and they include the red hemagglutinin spike, which is the attachment site to the host cell, and the neuraminidase, the blue globs you see there, which is important in release of the virus when it escapes from the host cell. The life cycle of the influenza virus uh, is fairly well known. Uh, there's attachment to sialic acid uh, residues on the surface of epithelial cells by the hemagglutinin. The virus is taken up, takes over the cell uh, life cycle, uh, and produces new ribonuclear protein. Uh, the 
new surface proteins coat the surface of the cell and then it's budded off. And so the shape of the virus is somewhat irregular and related to the uh, membrane derived from the host cell. There are four types of influenza virus, A, B, C, and D. Influenza A is the most important and the one we're going to really be talking about mostly here. Uh, it's classified into subtypes based on the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. So you'll remember seeing on the vaccine box or the CDC's reports, H1N1, H3N2, H whatever, uh, that relates to the specific type of hemagglutinin molecule and the neuraminidase uh, molecule. Uh, these are the strains that are responsible for almost all of the major global pandemics of influenza and certainly all the ones of historical importance. Influenza B can make the individual patient quite ill at times uh, and is a significant uh, cause of illness, but it doesn't usually cause the major worldwide wide pandemics. And it's classified simply as lineages, uh, mostly related to two precursor viruses. Influenza C is a rare uh, illness which causes only mild infection and is not really of any public health importance. And D is primarily seen in animals, not in humans. This is just some color computer modified pictures of what influenza virus looks like. Uh, it's irregularly shaped because it's a big bag of lipids uh, with viral uh, RNA inside and surface uh, proteins giving it that fuzzy appearance on the outside. Uh, this is a more of a close-up uh, computer enhanced color so you can see the spiral of the genetic material uh, and the surface proteins on the outside. Uh, flu is uh, again one of the major uh, killers of humans uh, historically and currently and we've seen that it tends to occur in uh, pandemics which occur at irregular intervals and we're going to talk a little bit about why that is in a moment. Uh, but just to show you uh, the significance of influenza historically, uh, if you look at the famous 1918 pandemic, which is arguably the most severe pandemic uh, of any kind in the last few hundred years, uh, you can see that as a percentage of U.S. deaths, uh, the 1918 epidemic uh, ranked only behind the Civil War as a major cause of death based on percentages. Uh, followed by World War II, heart disease, cancer, World War I, the 1957 flu pandemic, 1968 flu pandemic. Uh, the COVID, this is an older slide, uh, is now surpassed some of those, but still falls behind the influenza epidemic as a percentage of deaths in the U.S. population. There are two major things that happen to influenza on a year-to-year -year basis that explain why we see these recurrent infections uh, of varying severity. One is called antigenic drift. This is where small mutational changes occur in the virus, um, producing new viral strains that our immune system has greater difficulty recognizing. The second and more important is antigenic shift which leads to radical changes in the virus uh, surface proteins. It happens only occasionally, and our immune system simply doesn't recognize them at all. That's why we see all of a sudden worldwide pandemics uh, in what appears to be a totally new virus uh, in influenza. On, on a local note, uh, much of the work that I'm going to talk about in the next few moments uh, 
uh, was done here in Memphis at St. Jude Hospital. This is Dr. Robert Webster in his lab, and both Steve and I worked in his lab in years past, and I think helped generate some of our interest in uh, going into infectious disease in the first place. Influenza virus has the, uh, a segmented genome, as you can see by this cartoon, with individual strands of RNA corresponding to different viral proteins. It also has an interesting ability to infect cells with different influenza viral strains at the same time. Uh, and what happens is a uh, mix and match uh, progeny, uh, which is sort of almost a viral equivalent to sexual reproduction, so that you can have two different viral strains infecting the same cell, leading to random reassortment uh, such that as long as it gets the right RNA strand, it doesn't care which parent it came from. So you can end up with two very different viruses going in and a third completely different virus coming out. Influenza virus is also primarily a bird virus. That's where it probably started out and mammals became incidental hosts later on but it's adapted to become uh, an important pathogen in mammals too but there's a vastly greater variation of subtypes in the avian population. Uh, avian viruses occasionally can infect mammals, uh, and oftentimes in recent epidemics, it's been in the pig population. So pigs seem to be fairly susceptible to both bird flu viruses as well as mammalian viruses from humans. So it's oftentimes been in those settings where avian viruses recombine with human viruses in a pig population to lead to some of our newer pandemic strains when they develop. Some of the milestones in influenza recent history in 1917, the life expectancy in, men, in women was 54 years and men 48 years. In 1918, with the major influenza pandemic, the average life expectancy in the United States fell by 12 years. Uh, subsequent uh, Milestones include the 1957 uh, epidemic where the H2N2 virus first appeared in the human population. 1968, the so-called Hong Kong flu when the H3N2 uh, emerged in the population. Um, other important points are uh, uh, when the H1N1, uh, somewhat related to the 1918 strain, returned to the human population in 2009, but was fortunately much milder. Uh, and in 1960, when annual flu shots were first recommended for all of the population. This simply shows you the worldwide nature of influenza epidemics. This is the 1918 uh, strain, but uh, it involved essentially every uh, populated part of the world uh, occurring in various waves of, of varying severity. And this was at a time when international travel was not a big thing. So you can imagine what this may be like uh, if we had another similarly virulent strain uh, in this particular day and age. This is just a couple of historical slides of 1918 showing what influenza can do. Uh, this was a in Alaska, or, uh, far away from anywhere. Uh, a small town, this is their cemetery, and they ended up losing uh, the majority of the population of the town to influenza. Uh, these are slides from France. Uh, this is uh, in the United States and looks eerily familiar to the COVID 
precautions that we've been using the last few years. What about influenza's risk for future killer pandemics analogous to the 1918 strain? This is a uh, abstract from an article by Dr. Webster, whose picture you saw a minute ago. And uh, he says, pandemics of influenza emerge from the aquatic bird reservoir, adapt to humans, modify their severity and cause seasonal influenza. The catastrophic Spanish influenza in 1918 probably obtained all of its eight gene segments from an avian reservoir, whereas the other two major pandemics, the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu, emerged by a reassortment between circulating human virus uh, and avian H2 or H3 donors. Of the 16 hemagglutin subtypes, in addition to the current circulating ones, H2, H5, H6, H7, and H9 are thought to have pandemic potential. So he concludes by saying that if uh, the, some of the current bird flu strains do not uh, become human pathogens, then eventually something else will, and a future influenza pandemic is inevitable. What's required to have a severe strain like the 1918 uh, epidemic? Uh, first, a new antigenic makeup, which occurs generally by antigenic shift. Uh, second is a genetic ability to transmit readily to humans from the animal population and among humans uh, from person to person. Third is it has to be a virulent strain. Uh, and fourth, it has to have an ability to survive in the environment with temperature constraints, drying, uh, ultraviolet light from the sun, etc. And those are highly variable and controlled by the genetic makeup of the individual virus. So we may have a strain like the H5N1 bird flu that kills about 60% of humans when they contract it. But fortunately, at present, it's not very able to transmit to humans or between humans. Uh, but as uh, time goes on, we may uh, unfortunately see uh, that ability develop in similar strains. Um, Let's look at some interesting things that have happened with flu recently, and then I'll conclude by talking a little bit about uh, next year's flu and vaccine requirements. Um, we noticed uh, in looking at flu epidemics year to year, we have an annual flu outbreak uh, until 2021 when we didn't really. And you can see the graph here of 2018, 2019, and then where there should be another spike for the 2020 outbreak, there wasn't one. We had a few cases of flu, but what apparently happened is we shut down everything with COVID and everybody wore a mask and everybody stayed away from each other. So suggesting that influenza can be at least in part controlled by everybody isolating and wearing masks. Uh, this may be an important thing to remember if we have a future killer strain of influenza, we may be able to positively uh, impact transmission by using the things we've learned to do with COVID and we may someday be able to say, gosh, that COVID was a good thing. It was a dry run for us to uh, know what to do when we have another uh, killer influenza epidemic. Uh, you can see uh, here in a similar graph, the deaths from respiratory infections were almost all due to COVID in 20 and 2021, whereas the uh, deaths from influenza in the gold down below essentially disappeared during that time period. We have, however, seen a bit of a resurgence recently in the beginnings of this year's epidemic. Uh, you can see the pink at the very bottom showing the 2021 outbreak uh, and the 21-22 outbreak 
uh, is the red triangles. And we did start to see some cases coming back as we relaxed precautions a bit. Um, what can we look forward to for next flu? Well, the easiest way to look for that is to see what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, remember, they're six months out of sync with us. It tends to be a disease we see in the fall and the winter, and so it occurs in their fall and winter. So we can look back and see what's happened in primarily the Southern Hemisphere, and particularly Australia, uh, and we see that in the last epidemic in Australia, they had only 584 cases of influenza reported. Uh, that was in 2021. So far in the 2022 outbreak, they had 216,000 cases, uh, an increase of 37,000% over the previous year. Uh, so we think that we're going to see something similar in the Northern Hemisphere as our influenza uh, starts to ramp up in the fall and winter. We're no longer using the same kind of precautions. Hospitals and communities have lifted their mask requirements, and we've had people that have had a few years of not having had flu, uh, so they may be more susceptible than ever. Uh, it's time now, of course, to vaccinate. Uh, we try to vaccinate everybody, but in particular healthcare workers and uh, our employees here at the hospital. Uh, and there are a few changes uh, for this coming year. Uh, the most important is that the flu vaccine, of course, has had its composition modified on an annual basis uh, to reflect the most recently circulating strains. Uh, most notable, though, is that the CDC has recommended now that the over 65 population receive one of the enhanced vaccines, either the high dose or the adjuvant vaccine, uh, and there are three that meet their qualifications. So going forward, 65 and older should preferentially receive one of those three vaccines as opposed to the standard ones. Uh, previously, they simply said, hey, these are available, they're a good idea, but we don't really strongly recommend one over the other. Uh, they do make the comment that if you uh, have no access to one of those vaccines and you're 65 and older, you can still get the other vaccine. Uh, it will still work, but and they don't want you to miss getting a vaccine at all, trying to wait around for the more effective one. Uh, but when they're available, you should give one of those three vaccines to your over 65 population. The timing of the vaccine is still the same, primarily in September and October being the prime months uh, of uh, vaccination timing. These are, I'm not going to refer to these, but simply to uh, show you the nine commercially available influenza vaccines. They differ in somewhat in how they're manufactured. Some are in eggs, some are not in eggs, uh, some are high dose, the 65 and older, and some are not. Um, I'm going to uh, answer a few of the questions from question and answer just because this is asked always about uh, influenza vaccines. Most importantly lately is can I get a influenza vaccine and a COVID vaccine at the same time? And the answer is yes, you can. Uh, I did so last year, and many people are doing that now. There's no real increased risk of side effects and so forth of proceeding that way. Uh, second question is, can I get a flu shot if I have an egg allergy? The answer is yes. Uh, there are some that are commercially made without eggs, but even if you don't have access to that, the CDC notes that severe reactions related to egg allergy are almost non-existent, so that if you have a mild egg allergy, you can just go ahead and get whatever flu shot you want. If you have a somewhat more severe egg allergy, you can still get whatever flu shot you want, but they recommend that you receive it 
uh, in a physician's office or a hospital or a clinic or somewhere where you could be observed for a short time. And again, there is a non-IG-based shot for those that are particularly concerned about that. Uh, finally, can I get a flu shot if I'm immunocompromised or pregnant? And the answer is yes, you can. There is a live virus uh, nasal vaccine, but the injectable ones are all uh, inactivated virus, and you can receive those if you're immunocompromised or pregnant. And I think I'm going to stop there and we'll hit the question and answer session. All right, thank you very much. Um, I haven't seen any questions in the chat. Have you, Sabrina? If anyone has a question, you can enter it in the chat or I think Sabrina can even take you off mute and you can ask it out loud. I can. Um, Dr. Rollinson actually asked a question. Oh, perfect, I didn't see that. Go ahead, Sabrina. Do you know what the question is or where it was? Yes, yes. So he asked, fatigue is a common symptom in post-COVID or long COVID conditions. Is there any way to test or define this better? Well, long COVID, of course, is a highly sort of um, controversial situation in that a lot of the symptoms in long COVID can be caused by other things. So the first is to obviously make sure that that it really is not associated with any new or uh, otherwise new treatable process. Um, but I'm not aware of any actual testing. Obviously, the only test that you can do is to check total antibody to know that you've ever had COVID. You can't really tell how long ago you had it even or whether you have had it multiple times. So unfortunately, I think the answer to that is uh, is, that is no, unless my uh, better colleagues have any, any other thoughts about it. So yeah, unfortunately, that's the very hardest thing. Uh, and for that reason, chronic fatigue of all types have always been very difficult, particularly when post-infectious. They're common. They can be relatively long-lived in most of these sorts of disease types they go away over a course of months and you get better. But, uh, you know, COVID, we, we really don't know yet. Thank you. Sabrina, do you have any other questions? Because I wasn't seeing that. Yeah, so there's one more that just came through from Dr. Mays. And her question is, where is monkeypox vaccine available? The monkeypox vaccine would be available through the health departments. And that's where it's it's been sort of allocated to. Uh, there are certain other healthcare facilities that have gotten some monkeypox vaccine. The Genios vaccine is what we're talking about, but generally that's through the, through the health department. The um, CDC and others have sort of advocated, since we have a short supply of vaccine, a sort of a ring strategy, highest risk patients, and then sort of in a ring around them if they uh, develop, if somebody develops illness, um, uh, they are considered high risk. So that's that's been the strategy to try to help with, you know, really um, vast shortage of, of what we would really need to try to prevent this. And it is part of the reason that uh, the CDC and others feel that monkeypox is likely going to be with us for a while. Any, any other comments? Anybody? No. Um, here's another question. Uh, thank you, Dr. Omer, for that response. Um, this next one is about COVID. Do we anticipate COVID vaccines being given alongside flu vaccines in the future, or does COVID's prior summer seasonal peaks alter the strategy? Well, the timing of the COVID vaccine remains uh, kind of, as I alluded to, the most controversial of all issues. Obviously, the flu is what it is. It's likely to go back to a 
you know, wintertime, uh, more epidemic sort of situation that we're beginning to see again as of last year, but saw none of it the year before. COVID, obviously, um, I showed one slide that showed that in certain populations, the second booster, i.e. the fourth shot overall, independent of whether you had the disease or not, um, gave an advantage, particularly to the people who were most vulnerable to moderate disease causing uh, significant problems. Um, but what we don't know um, is whether a fifth shot over a fourth shot will do the same thing. We presume that particularly in the highest risk folks, restoring uh, some degree of neutralizing antibodies will protect against even mild infections. But on a stair-step fashion, that appears to be getting not as impressive over time. So that really is the question, how many times a every six months, let alone yearly vaccine is gonna protect us from that? So far, the neutralizing antibodies decay significantly faster. And so far, I didn't mention this completely, but T-cell immunity has hung on with remarkable resilience. I mean, uh, even the original vaccine, which was, after all, directed against the Wuhan 1 strain, not even the strain that made it across to the United States. It was the initial isolate where the vaccine was directed against that, continues to have conserved T-cell attack points that keep us from dying even after just a couple of vaccines in most people. So the, whether it, it can sort of degenerate, if you will, into a yearly vaccine that can go along with flu, um, you probably need it more often than that. If you're at the highest risk, you may not need it at all if you're in the lowest risk, unless you're trying to prevent transmitting it to other people. You hope that healthcare workers will try to get a more regular vaccine, at least for now. Uh, and the other variable that I only scratched the surface on was the fact that these new variants are overcoming past immunity with a bit of an alarming trend. The latest variants that I kind of scrawled out in red on that uh, genetic map, uh, they don't really respect our monoclonal antibodies, our other antibodies that we have very well. Now, will they be infectious enough? to overtake in a contest with B5 and the other variants? We don't know. It's the confluence of virulence, immune evasion, and contagious uh, characteristics that really make up how severe something is in the aggregate. So I think that moving forward, the timing of the COVID vaccine is very much uh, still up in the air and will depend on a couple of those variables. And I think the winner, this, uh, I hesitate to say this, but I will say it anyway, this winter should be very instructive as to the future. The only reason I hesitate is that we've said that at seemingly every three months or so for the last two and a half years. But I think this one will be no less uh, instructive than we've seen in the past. Anything else? Yeah, I think going forward, uh, goals of research are to try to uh, develop a vaccine that, uh, that involves more of a conserved portion of both influenza and COVID. And, and that's something we can hope look forward to is that Someday we'll have a vaccine that actually works for most of the strains altogether rather than having to change each year. Influenza and COVID both change on a regular basis. Uh, the change in COVID is probably more analogous to antigenic drift in an influenza virus. And in that case, COVID is probably more efficient at changing than influenza virus is. But when influenza virus undergoes an antigenic shift, uh, it's a radical alteration in the antigenic makeup that makes it a totally different virus uh, than what we've experienced in the past. So uh, that would require a new vaccine probably to be brought out uh, and manufactured, we hope, in some of the recombinant techniques that were developed for the COVID to let us make a fast vaccine uh, for this brand new flu strain. 
Sabrina, I think we have one more question that I'm not yes. receiving, but you are. This is the last one. I know we're a little bit over, but I would hate to leave Dr. Valdez hanging. So his question is, how soon after getting COVID can you get the COVID booster vaccine? What if you are a slow setter with positive COVID molecular tests week late, excuse me, positive COVID molecular tests weeks after recovery? Can you still get a vaccine after completing isolation or quarantine, but repeatedly positive tests days to weeks later? It's a long one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there are a couple of issues. I mean, how soon should you get it? I think the average person is probably going to have a fair amount of protection, even with the neutralizing antibodies as they decay for you know, three, four, out maybe to six months. After that, you can't really count on that sort of extra protection that will keep you from getting even milder illness. Again, that's only important in a young, healthy person if you're worried about transmitting it to others or if you're worried about those long-term cardiovascular side effects that we simply haven't characterized well enough to know what the risk of them are. I, I think that's a substantial uh, reason to consider. Um, as for how soon you can get it after, uh, you, you know, I think the, the formal recommendation is something like two months. Now, in the special circumstance that, that, uh, that was mentioned, um, people can actually have what you would sort of describe to as sort of junk RNA being swept away, and thus those positive RNA tests can last out uh, a month or two, out maybe to as long as 90 days. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have active virus uh, that's being produced. That's why an antigen test is probably much better on the far end of the curve to see if you're no longer producing active viable a virus that can be transmitted to others. But those exceptions, of course, are things like immunosuppressed people can actually have long-standing infection. We've seen several people actually here that have had fairly long-standing actual production of virus. And those are the people that you worry the most about actually generating variants in them as time goes by. Um, so in that sense, um, a person probably I think the curves probably don't intersect very well. I think if you're still having RNA produced, um, you're not likely to need a new vaccine yet. So I think from a practical standpoint, it probably is longer after a COVID infection than you're likely to still have any stray RNA being picked up on a test. Uh, even if you're not infectious, that you wouldn't yet likely need a vaccine at that point. And of course, if you're immunosuppressed and still making that virus, that's another special problem altogether. And we can consider things like monoclonal antibodies or other sorts of antivirals that would be outside the box of what the formal normal recommendations would be from the NIH that we talked about. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Any more questions, Sabrina, or maybe we can follow up online with people? Because I do yeah. know it's like almost 107. We appreciate everyone hanging in here. We understand this week was fall break. I do want to say to our speakers, we probably had more people listening than you saw participants because we have people listening, you know, more than one person at a computer often, especially in our residencies. So again, thanks for, again, for this really appropriate um, discussion topic. And I want to remind everyone to join us again the first week of November for Dr. Muhatra to present multidisciplinary lung nodule care which I think is also something very appropriate. And then in December, we will be having a special grand rounds for two hours. If you attend both hours um, for Tennessee, you will fulfill your uh, uh, Tennessee uh, control substances education requirement. So stay tuned. So again, thank you everyone. And you can now disconnect.
Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.